1: LinkedIn, the place to be, to be.
2: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: It's brand new season two. Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, where we try to help you feel a little less weird about money, one conversation at a time. I am your host, Paco De Leon, and on this week's episode, I'm chatting with Darren Robinson. Risk is abstract. Our minds not only struggle with imagining it, we also grapple with calculating the probability of reward. I think I have a strong appetite for risk, and the people I tend to surround myself with do too. For example, business owners, artists, and the intriguing cohort that are both take on huge amounts of risk in hopes of a comparable reward. I feel more equipped with navigating risk in my own life when I try to understand how other folks think about it in theirs. This is why I wanted to chat with Darren Robinson. He's an artist, specifically a guitarist, and he's pretty all in when it comes to the very risky game of investing in crypto. I want to be clear. This is not an episode promoting crypto as an investment. It's me following my own curiosity and trying to understand why something as seemingly boring as digital currency and blockchain technology has captivated so many folks outside of the world of finance. Please enjoy my conversation with Darren.
1: Darren.
3: Thank you so much for taking the time today to chat with me about your life and your love of crypto.
4: Ahoy, I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me.
3: I was really intrigued and I really wanted to talk to you mostly about two aspects of who you are. You are a working musician in a band called Phantom Planet and you've been doing this for how many years now?
4: Uh, Technically the band... Got started in like 1994. Wow. So a long time. But I've actually been with some of the members of my band since even before that. I think 93, 92.
3: That's amazing.
4: Long time. Yeah. Very so
3: long time. I'm curious about unpacking what it's like to work with your friends over many decades. The decision to pursue art professionally, and especially as someone who's played music, who's played in bands, and who's always viewed the music industry as kind of sus. I wanted to really get your take on it. You're also super into crypto. And, you know, this show is not to promote crypto in any way, shape or form. I'm just genuinely curious about how folks jump into the rabbit hole and, uh, you know, who they listen to and how they make these decisions and really what's their rationale for investing in something really risky. So I appreciate you being an open book here and talking about these two things.
4: Yeah, my, my pleasure. I just want it to be on record, though. I'm definitely no expert. So please, anybody listening to this, don't follow anything that I say. Don't invest <laughs> in anything I say. Just do your own research and, you know, do what you, is right for you.
3: I love that. Thank you, Darren. Yeah. So tell me about Phantom Planet. How did the band get started? How did you get uh, involved? What are the origins?
4: So I'll go way back because it all kind of connects. When I was... 11 years old, I had some neighbors in the area where I grew up who were telling me that they were going to start a band. It was two brothers. One of the brothers was going to play drums. One was going to play, I think, bass. And then they asked me if I want to play guitar. And I was like, oh, my God, yeah, that sounds amazing. So I ran home, told my parents, I'm like, listen, I want to play guitar. Do you think you can give me some lessons? They kind of looked at me, you know, very uh, not sure what to think. And my dad's like, All right, listen, we can go and rent a guitar. We'll rent to own it. I'll sit you up with lessons. We'll rent to own a guitar. And if you find that you like it, then we'll continue and you'll eventually own the guitar. Otherwise, if you have one lesson and, you know, don't want to uh, play anymore, then that's the end of it. So, literally the next day, we planned out a lesson. I found a guitar teacher in West LA and I started playing. And the funniest part is that the other guys never started a band. So 11 years old, I started playing guitar, became obsessed. It wasn't too long after that, that my cousin, his name is Simon Helberg. Some people would know him from now, from the TV show, The Big Bang Theory. He's a pretty big time actor. He does very well, but he's also a really good musician. And the two of us used to play when I was younger. And eventually, after playing for so many years, he invited me to go to his good friend's house, Jason Schwartzman. Jason Schwartzman, as some of you guys might know, was the lead actor in Rushmore, the movie Rushmore. And uh, he was also the drummer of Phantom Planet. So that's kind of how I got started. It was sort of on a whim and I stuck with it. And then through my cousin, met Jason and then Phantom Planet kind of formed through many years of us just like just playing together and going through so many different members of the band. It was sort of a revolving door. And eventually it solidified and we kind of decided to take it seriously and keep pushing.
3: So you're one of the original founding members.
4: I am. Yeah. I'm actually, it was Jason and me. uh, We were the first two who are still in the band. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that.
3: Wow. Eleven is really young to start playing. And I also like that you didn't, you didn't even play before, but you were down. You're like, "Uh, you know what? Uh, this is a challenge ahead of me and I'm going to, I'm going to make it happen. That's very cool.
4: Definitely. Yeah. I I had gotten really into music. Honestly, it was Guns N' Roses that did it to me Uh, when (laughs) I was in fifth grade. I thought Slash was amazing. I remember hearing Paradise City and just thinking, wow, like maybe I should play guitar. And then that catalyzed making that actually happen. So
3: it's always like a little bit embarrassing when you look back and you're like what your 10 year old, like what blew the mind of your 10 year old self for me. Because I grew up in Anaheim, I remember like Saturday morning, eating cereal, putting MTV on and seeing Gwen Stefani with like her sports bra or her like crop top shirt that said Anaheim. And she was singing, I'm just a girl and my brain exploded. I was like, wait, you could do that? You could just be in a band? Like you could be from Anaheim and be a lady and play in a band? And after that, I was like, yeah, I think this is what I'm going to fuck with for a while. That's awesome. How old were you guys when Phantom Planet started to take off? Tell me about like that roller coaster. And I'm sure the, you know, California getting onto the OC had a lot to do with that. What was that roller coaster ride like?
4: In the beginning, we had a show. Uh, it was at the the Dragonfly. I don't know if it's still there or not, but it's on like Santa Monica and Vine Somewhere around that area. Yeah. I don't remember exactly. But we had that show, I think, when we were 17. So we had just been playing for a little bit of time, doing exactly what you said, playing in the garage, trying to really figure out how to be in a band. Because none of us had really been in a band together or with other people. So we we're trying to figure it all out. We got this show at the Dragonfly through a manager, if I remember this correctly, a manager that we had who was just kind of a friend at the time. But the stipulation with us playing was this is a 21 and over gig. So you have to play it and then you have to get the hell out. Like we weren't allowed to stay in, we had to just leave. So we did that, played the show. It went well, you know, for I didn't know what I was doing. So like none of us really did, but, you know, there were mess ups all over the place, but that general energy was there. And afterwards we found out that there was this guy named Dan Field, who was a manager. Uh, At the time, he still is a manager and uh, he took interest in us. And so we ended up meeting with him and he ended up getting us set up with one of his friends whose name is Lee Popa. And this guy literally put us through a band boot camp. I remember a summer came around. I don't remember if it was 95, 96, 97, maybe, maybe even 98, truthfully. But he put us through a band boot camp. We would play for eight hours a day, like 5 days a week i think it was. Wow. Full-time job. It was a full-time job, yeah, not getting paid, but <laughs> just kind of learning the ropes and and like really trying to feel what it was like to be in a band and to just to grow, you know. Eventually we did that. We made some demos with Lee Popa and then our manager sent those to someone he knew at Geffen Records and they heard it. They had us come in and we got signed. So that was sort of how it all started, which was, man, Geffen Records at the time, just for those who don't know, it was like Aerosmith, Nirvana, I think Sonic Youth was on there, tons of huge bands. And that was sort of like a dream for all of us collectively is to be on that specific record label. Hopefully that answers your question.
3: That does. Now I need to know when you were, I'm sure you were elated and I'm sure you were excited. What What did navigating the financial side of a record deal look like at that age?
4: So confusing, honestly. (laughs) I I personally, I can only speak for myself really, but I had no idea what was going on. Thankfully, with our manager, he was a good dude, really good guy. He wasn't there just to like steal money from us as happens to a lot of people, but he had connections to lawyers and things like that. So I didn't, I couldn't tell you what, financially what was going on, but I knew that it was sound. Like we had, since we were all so young at the time, we had our parents involved. Okay. Just so they were there during some of the meetings. Mm-hmm. So it all felt very safe at the time. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell you <laughs> the their financials. I really don't know.
3: What do your parents do or what did they do if they're retired?
4: My dad is retired. He used to be a bail bondsman for many, many years. He kind of fell into that because my mom's stepdad uh, owned a business. So my dad ended up working for him. And my mom was and still is a teacher's aide. So nothing in the entertainment world, none of them play music. They don't act, nothing like that.
3: What was their take on you, you know, going for it, getting a record deal and pursuing music?
4: Honestly, they were really supportive. You know, some parents... I know probably would have been like, oh, you have to go to college, you have to learn this, you have to learn that. They were very supportive and they, uh, I guess, kind of trusted that I knew what I was doing even though I was young and dumb. But it definitely felt like at the time that was what I wanted to do and focus all my attention on. So yeah, they were just supportive of it.
3: I love music. I wouldn't be the person I am today if I didn't fuck around with music for you know m- several hours during my developmental years. And if I go too long today, as an adult, if I go too long a period without playing and writing, I just start to feel weird and I feel irritated. And that's when I'm like, oh, yeah, you should do that thing that makes you feel like a like yourself. And I also notice when I'm really anxious about something, if I just grab the guitar and I sing, I immediately feel a million times better. So that's been a godsend to have that little like hack you know, that little shortcut in life to immediately like calm my nervous system and just make me feel regular. So I love music, but I've always thought the business side was like super sus. And especially watching, because the music industry to me has always been the one that gets its ass kicked with new technologies, right? So we go from vinyl to tapes, tapes to CDs, CDs to Napster, Napster to streaming. And now we have all these other mediums following, right? We have actors like Sydney Sweeney talking about how the heyday of being an actor that's all gone now because of streaming favorite people's favorite shows and movies are being pulled from platforms on a regular basis because of all the payments with streaming you know uh, streaming platforms don't want to pay these residuals now they're shaping content so that there is no back end but I'm really curious like did you ever do you have the same Feeling that the business side of music is super sus, or was it just a wonderful experience for you? And so you're just like, whatever.
4: Before I answer that question, I just want to give you a little credit because if it's not to my if I'm not mistaken, you didn't you write and sing the theme song of your podcast? I sure did. (laughs) That's so cool. Um, because it's a really cool song. So thank you. Kudos to you for that. Yeah, definitely. so wait look, well, let do me, I, th- I,
3: wait before we move yeah. on you know i worked with jenna sure. and andrew on that you know they're my yeah. collaborative partners for many many years i've been playing music with jenna since we, we were 15 and i continue to collaborate with her and you know my job is to have a harebrained idea and their job is to help me bring it together so i just want to give credit where credit
4: is that are you is that going to be are you going to keep that in the podcast yeah OK, awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jen and Andrew <laughs> are some of my very good friends as well. Some of the two of the most genuine people I've ever met in my entire life. I wouldn't know you if, if not for them. So,
3: yeah. Shout out, Parkers.
4: Yeah. So do I think the music industry is sus? I definitely do. Pretty much always did. It's very confusing to me the way things it's all very political, the way things get. You know, like if you want to be on radio, sometimes bands have to do this thing called payola. So they end up paying out a radio station of, you know, a big bag of money and then they get played. Wait, isn't that illegal? It is illegal. (laughs) I'm not saying we've ever done it. (laughs) Clearly we haven't. Otherwise, we would be on the radio and we're really not that much. (laughs) But it
3: still happens, even though it's illegal is what you're saying.
4: Absolutely. How naive of me. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that definitely, definitely happens. Yeah. I mean... Things have changed a lot since we were kids. You know, like when we were 18 is when we first got signed. And I'm not going to name names, but dealing with certain A&R people and heads of companies and things like that, you know, at 18, I didn't 100% understand what was going on. And like I said earlier, thankfully, we had a good lawyer and we had a really good manager. So I kind of put my faith in them, um, as naive as that is. But yeah, I, I always thought things were very sus- it kind of reminds me of like the way you hear models getting treated a certain way in the modeling industry, you hear actors getting treated a certain way. It's very similar in the music world. So yeah, the things are very sus. (laughs) There's no doubt about it.
3: I love the art. I hate the business. And I mean, so with that, you know, you've been a working musician for several decades now, lots of experience again, roller coaster ride. (laughs) I just want to know, What's your advice for folks who are looking to pursue music professionally?
4: That's kind of a tough question these days, just because, you know, in the past, I would say practice a lot, write as much music as possible, uh, and then play as many shows as you can. But these days, things are so different. The whole paradigm has shifted. Um, So I guess it would be the same thing. You know, write a lot of music write from the heart. Don't try to write hit singles, you know, like you should do what comes from the heart. The only thing that I, I guess I would advise these days is like, you know, if you have Instagram or TikTok or any social media, I hate to say it because it drives me crazy, but <laughs> that's how people are getting noticed Noticed these days. It's not really being on a record label. It's just getting exposure and consistency. And at least that's what it seems like, you know?
3: Yeah, I like that you say the word consistency because I've always, not always, I've I, w- I would say over the last like, five, seven years, I've really been questioning this idea of consistency in art and consistency in quality, where I really am starting to believe that as long as you're consistent, eventually you'll find your audience. And now with TikTok this day and age, you can't, I mean, a record deal is nice, but there's plenty of ways that musicians and creators can make a living outside of having like a, a third party, like a, a record label, I think. Maybe that's naive of me. But even in my own work, I notice like, okay, if I just send out an email every Wednesday, everybody expects it. It's like, yeah, the consistency is such a powerful force. And then I think about it in terms of music too. It's like, I'll hear a Justin Bieber song or somebody who maybe I don't really gravitate towards their music, I'll hear it one time. And then over the course of a summer, it will be bludgeoned into my ear ears and into my dome. And by the end of that summer, I'm like, huh, I kind of like that song. And it just makes me wonder like, how much consistency plays into our ideas of like what is quality and, and what do we like and all that stuff. So I think it's great advice, Darren.
4: Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
3: <laughs> all right. I want to shift the conversation now. Unless you have anything else you want to talk about in terms of music. I really want to ask you how you got into crypto.
4: Okay, a good question. I have no other music-related stuff to discuss, but happy to answer any questions. Crypto, for me, started in, I don't remember what year it was, but it was either 2016 or 17, maybe in that range, maybe even 2018. I was dating a girl at the time, and the two of us had these good friends who came over. We were having dinner, and he was telling me about Bitcoin. I'm like, yeah, you know, I've heard of it, but I've never, you know, I, I haven't invested. I don't understand how to invest. The whole thing made no sense to me. <laughs> I, j- I just knew that it was, you know, somewhat like the stock market, but a somewhat different world entirely. Sure. And he's like, you know, if I get you set up on this one exchange, I don't even know what it was called, Coinbase or one of those things. He's like, what, what if you just throw in $100 into Bitcoin and just let it sit and see what happens? And I was like, that's cool. Fine. Yeah, I'll throw in $100. Didn't expect much, right? And uh, so that was my first exposure to it. Didn't take it very seriously. The unfortunate thing is, had I kept the password that I had at the time when I invested that $100, I mean, I don't know what the price of Bitcoin was in in 2017 or 18, but it went up to $67,000 a coin. Yeah. So my $100 probably would have been at least a couple grand. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I lost my password, so... (laughs) story of my life. So that was my I'm first starting exposure. I'm sorry I'm just
3: laughing at you, Darren, but I'm no,
4: sorry. No, ha- I laugh at myself, trust me. Like it's, it is what it is. And I'm sure at some point as I learn more and more about crypto, I feel like I'm invested now in some pretty serious coins that I think will do well. Okay. F- fingers crossed. So hopefully down the line, I'll, I'll make up for the, for losing that password. But then, so over COVID is when I really, really got into crypto though. So I guess that would have been, I want to say it was, I think it was early 2021, if I'm okay. not mistaken. I remember Bitcoin was at around $49,000 at the time. Okay. So we'd have to check the charts. Alex, our the lead singer of Phantom Planet, he and I had been talking about crypto and he was telling me all his investments, which I'm not going to tell you what they are, but telling me what he was invested in. And he was saying, you know, crypto is kind of down right now. Bitcoin is is... It was still a high price, but it was lower than it had been for a while. And he's like, listen, I'm not telling you to invest. But if you have some extra funds, I would, you know, look into maybe just buying some Bitcoin. And I looked at the charts. I'm like, you know what, I'll just do it. And I threw $500 in. And that was that. And then when I do things like this, like if I invest in crypto or get involved in a band that I like or whatever the case may be, I like to research the hell out of it. Like ad nauseum, you know? I'm a total nerd, yeah. I'm a dork, a nerd, whatever you want to call it, big time. Um, But I like to understand as much as I can about these things. So I started researching Bitcoin more and more, started to understand it at least a little bit. Definitely no expert. So at that point, I started hearing more and more about these other types of crypto that are called DeFi crypto. So like the way I look at it, DeFi just means decentralized finance. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's no central... Bank. It's all kind of just the people, right? I started hearing about these other. They're called tokens. They're not even called coins. So it's kind of like hmm. the way I the way I see it, at least, is it's kind of like in stocks. You have these major stocks like Apple that are worth hundreds of dollars. Yeah. And then you have pen, penny stocks. Okay. Right. And penny penny stocks, you can make a lot of money, but chances are you're going to lose all all your money if you if you try to invest in it. But that's what I got interested in, and it kind of went from there. So yeah, that was sort of, that's kind of how I got into crypto.
3: So I still honestly don't fully understand the blockchain. And I mean, I've read different case studies where, or examples where it seems like, yeah, blockchain would be cool. Like if I never had to tell my doctor again, you know, how to get my medical records, if that existed. But do you feel like there are, okay, do you feel comfortable explaining what the blockchain is, first of all?
4: I'm honestly probably not. I don't know if okay. I could put it into like good terms. All I can tell you is that essentially what it is is a way of anything you do is traceable, anything. So like if I move, you know, one coin to another coin or if I buy a coin, that's all immutable. It cannot be removed. It is there forever, so everything is kind of out in the open. Um so That's really the best way I could explain it?
3: Yeah, there's a permanent ledger that other people have access to. There's not one place where the ledger lives, and therefore it cannot be manipulated. So we're recording this episode today, kind of we're right in the middle of, or we're just starting to get news about bank failings in Silicon Valley. So Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic is now in trouble. And I'm curious if you are feeling like the decentralized finance vibe is going to take off because of this fear that people are going to, I don't know, lose their money in the bank, which I really don't think that that's going to happen. But it does bring up some interesting, you know, kind of thoughts about our banking system and how, yeah, it's kind of all just exists centrally on a bunch of computers on bits and bytes. And we can just kind of, make more money out of nothing. What is that? How do you feel about all that?
4: So how do I answer this question? I mean, <laughs> in my opinion, again, this is just my opinion, but, you know, crypto is definitely risky. You no, know, Whether you're investing in Bitcoin, Ethereum, the two, that's like uh, the gold and the silver of all crypto, essentially, a lot of people look at it like that. Or there's so much to this. To me, the way the banking system works, there's like, I think they call it fractional... Fractional reserve, reserve
3: of, banking, yes.
4: Yes. So fractional reserve banking essentially means, you know, let's say I put in $10,000 into the bank. The bank then can literally do whatever they want with my money. They can invest it and make money on it. I think they make like, don't quote me on this. You, you probably know better than I do, but 6% or way more than that on your funds. And so, then they'll wait, say- Wait, let oh, me interrupt
3: you, Darren. There's like a please. threshold to how much the bank can lend out. So if you put in $10,000- I think the threshold, I think the last time I checked was maybe they can lend out 55% and they need to keep 45% in reserves.
4: Definitely. Not to mention, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but like, I'm sure you know this, but the uh, Federal Reserve, who is not federal, they're literally just private bankers that are above the government. So they're loaning money to the banks. They're printing money. Yep. Loaning it to the banks at interest. So that means that banks get, money from the Federal Reserve and then in order for them to pay that money back they have to pay interest on money that doesn't exist until the Federal Reserve then prints the money that doesn't exist. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm putting, I'm, I'm terrible at explaining this. But <laughs> no, no worries. The whole thing is basically kind of just a big scam. Like, I don't think people realize that fiat currency or like the US dollar is all based not based, but it's The way that it works is basically kind of like a Ponzi scheme. And they'll say the same thing. Bankers would say the same thing about crypto. So it's like, which is the. You know, know,
3: in general, if you smoke enough weed and talk to enough people (laughs) about money, you ultimately end up at this conclusion, this like very stoner belief or idea that you realize you're like, whoa, money is a shared delusion. That all of society believes in and because we have to pay taxes in dollar denominated currency, that's why it has so much weight and so much meaning. And that's, you know, like I wouldn't go and work for not dollars because I end, up, I ultimately have to pay my taxes in dollars. And that's a big reason why we're so locked into this system is because the government says you have to pay us in dollars. But one of the things I found really interesting when I was researching my book was There's this story about the origin of money and how Adam Smith, the godfather of classic economics, talks about, he tells this story in his book called Wealth of Nations about money's origin and that money came about because we would be in a New England town bartering, right? And I have like sheep's milk and you have eggs, but you need boots or something from the leather guy. And so you, we would have to figure out like a daisy chain of bartering to figure out how you could get your boots that involves, you know, trading one thing for another thing for another thing for the boots. That's not necessarily the origin of money. Like if you look into it and start to do, uh, read the research of anthropologists, not just economists, but anthropologists who've been studying societies, they have an argument that money is actually representative of debt. And it And so before, instead of doing this daisy chain of bartering, you would just say to the leather guy, like, I owe you. I can't even remember what we originally said you had eggs. I owe you 20 eggs. And then that leather guy would go around trading the I owe you 20 eggs. And then eventually those IOUs became money. And so I even think really unpacking that and understanding that the money was never, or it was never about barter and those... It was really about the, like it was about debt and a way to symbolize debt. That's like an entirely t- different take on money, which I think is really fascinating and really interesting. I don't really have a question. I just wanted to share that story with you.
4: No, that's I, I love learning and hearing about that stuff. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Definitely another way to, to view money. You
3: know? Right.
6: Miles, I'm so frustrated. I feel like by renting a house, I'm just throwing away money. I wish I could just buy a house and stop wasting my money.
7: Hold on, Allie. Buying a house is a good option for people, but paying rent isn't throwing away money.
6: Come on, you're full of it. How?
7: Well, for starters, when you rent, you pay money and in exchange, you have a place to stay that is safe and warm. It isn't throwing money away.
6: Hmm. I never thought about it like that. But what about all this talk about building equity and wasting money on rent?
7: It's true that when you buy a house, you're building equity. But you can also build equity by investing your money in the market. Use that extra money you would be using towards a mortgage and invest it. And guess what? Eventually, all that investing could lead you to having enough for a down payment for your house of your own. Either way, you'll be on the path to using your money to make more money.
6: Wow! I had no idea! Thanks for the pep talk, Miles. Now I know.
7: And knowing is half the battle. We finance. We finance. We finance.
3: We
0: finance. finance.
3: So, who are you like fanboying over right now? a crypto perspective and just a disclaimer this is we're not promoting we're not saying buy this cryptocurrency i'm genuinely just curious about darren being a nerd about crypto and what he's what he's looking at these days
4: so i don't fanboy over any any people okay specifically but in terms of cryptocurrency that i am personally into you know i started off with DeFi stuff kind of like safe moon safe moon by the way oh my god there's so much behind what what SafeMoon is. A lot of people think it's a scam because it actually did start off as a scam. That's a confirmed <laughs> fact. The uh, head guy kicked out a bunch of people that were bad players, so to speak, or bad actors, as they call them. And now it's kind of, you have factions within the crypto community debating whether or not this token is real or not real, or if it's going to be a rug pull. Right. Uh, rug pull just means they're taking the rug, all the, fun, all the liquidity goes to zero and you lose your money. So... I know I'm not explaining too much what SafeMoon is here. Maybe we can talk more about that if you want to. But these days, what I'm fanboying over are the ISO 20022 tokens, coins, (laughs) technically. What that is, I'll I'll explain that as quickly as I can. So right now, the messaging system that we use, Mm -hmm. like let's say, you know, one government wants to send another government a trillion dollars, right? Okay. They use a messaging system called SWIFT right now. Right. And SWIFT is, you know, basically is saying like, we're going to send, you know, a trillion dollars to the European, whatever you call it, government or bank or whatever it is. But the liquidity isn't there. It's just a messaging service. And then you send the funds later. Okay. Right? They have been having issues because in order for, let's say the government, the U.S. government sends money to Europe, like I was saying you know, Swift would say it would be the message, the message going through saying we're going to send this much. And then like, you know, a week later or a week and a half later, then the funds go through and then they clear. Okay. Right. Like a wire. So It's very slow. Yeah. Like a wire. Exactly. It's very slow. It's very expensive and it's just antiquated. Sure. So there are tokens now, coins, cryptos that are involved in trying to fix that situation. And like, You know, there's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum, and then there's other, they call them altcoins. So essentially what they are, there's seven of them that I'm aware of right now that are looking into fixing that problem of money taking a long time to go through and to settle and to actually be on the other side, so to speak. So to answer your question, it's very long-winded, but I'm really into XRP. Okay. They've been in a lawsuit for the past couple of years with the SEC, The SEC is trying to say that XRP is a security as opposed to a commodity. Okay. And nobody thinks that's true. Nobody believes it. I don't think they're going to win the case. XRP essentially has solved through their their innovation, their software, has solved the problem of money taking so long to go through. So essentially, like America could send Europe a trillion dollars. The fees would be remarkably low. And it would settle within, I think it's three to five seconds. Everything settles. That's crazy. It's not just a message, but it's liquidity, everything. Yeah. And there's no wait time on the fund settling. It's just boom, five seconds later, done. So it will literally revolutionize the entire world Mm -hmm. if, if it goes through and it does what it's supposed to do. So I am interested in the seven coins that are part of this new messaging system. It's called ISO. Two zero zero two two twenty thousand twenty two. So yeah, that's the seven coins, if I'm not mistaken, are XRP, XLM, XDC, Algorand. Okay, HBAR, IOTA, and Quant. Those are the seven that are I guess they meet the the standard, the regulations um, to be considered ISO twenty thousand twenty two compliant. Sorry if that's long winded, but no. I promise it makes sense.
3: (laughs) Sounds like you're either telling me about a video game I've never heard of or (laughs) a religion I've never heard of. (laughs) So I appreciate you walking me through. I know actually I do hold some XRP because I have a Coinbase account. And probably during COVID, they were like, you could do, you could like learn about the cryptocurrency. You go through these modules and then you take a quiz and then they give you like fractions of fractions of coins. And I do remember getting a few of the XRPs because I went through the modules. So maybe I'll check on it and see how it's going. But it sounds like to me that, you know, you are super into the technology. And I think that's what makes sense, at least from when I go on Reddit threads and try to understand why or in discords, why people are frothing over a certain token or a certain coin. And it's because they really believe that the underlying technology is going to be beneficial. And so that's why they're Coin holders, their stakeholders. They hope that the technology will take off and that they'll profit. And I think it is, isn't. I mean, it's really fascinating. It's really interesting because it goes back to this idea that money is a belief, right? We all believe in its value. And even if I'm never going to trade Pokemon cards, even if I never believe that a Charmander, I don't even know if that's a, if a Charmander first edition <laughs> card is going to be super valuable. Even if I don't believe that, there's a whole bunch of other people out there that do believe that. If you're listening and you're like, Pago doesn't know shit about Pokemon cards. What is that? It's true, because I don't. But it's the same thing with crypto. All of that is to say, I think that even if maybe large swaths of society don't go all in and they still use traditional banking systems, that's not to say that this thing doesn't have legs and that it's not going to be valuable to a certain group of folks. So it's really fascinating to see it unfold. Last question I guess I have for you about crypto. Maybe you already answered it. So take it how you want. What is it philosophically that you really buy into with Cryptocurrency.
4: Philosophically. I mean, I guess in my mind, I don't I just don't really trust mm-hmm. the banks. I don't, I don't trust fiat. You know, obviously I have a little bit of money in the bank, like you said earlier, because you have to pay bills, you have to pay taxes, you gotta buy food. And right now, crypto, I think the entire market cap of all crypto is just around the the trillion dollar mark, which is good, but it's not mass adopted yet. Right. So for me, it's just I don't want to say it's a hedge against the dollar because I don't know if I believe that. But I to me, it's just a good way to diversify, to not let the banks have full control of of your money, you okay. know. So yeah. hopefully that answers your question. No,
3: that makes sense to me. In the world of finance, we call cryptocurrency an alternative asset. And it's just something that's alternative. It's not normal stocks and bonds and funds it's something that exists a bit on the fringe and it's highly, highly volatile. We have no clue where it's going to go and what's going to happen to it. And truly my participation has been very minimal and it's been more like in the vein of schmuck insurance where I don't want to be the finance person who like didn't, you know, scoop a few coins and participate because I think also being a millennial, there's a lot of FOMO we've We've been through a lot, graduating during a housing crisis. And then there was a great recession for like 10 years. And now like Gen Z are just coming out strong, making a bunch of money. And we're like, oh man, we're losers. So I think that there's like a lot of FOMO. There's a lot of folks that believe that um, this is an opportunity to get in on the ground level at, uh, with something that's going to blow up. But again, that remains to be seen.
4: I, I will say, I, I definitely agree with you. The only thing... To me, that feels different about these seven coins that I just mentioned, and the reason why I'm interested in them, like XRP and things like that. They're so like Bitcoin is a store of value, right. and I think it will eventually go way up. Obviously, not financial advice, just my opinion. But I'm into things like XRP, XLM, all these different ISO twenty thousand twenty two coins. The reason I'm into them, though, is because they're not just a store of value, but they have real world utility behind them. Sure, they're utility coins. So the utility that they have can literally change the paradigm that we're living in. Governments have been talking about using uh, CBDCs, Central Bank Digital Currencies. Essentially, it's like making fiat into digital form, kind of like crypto. Sure. Which could be a very bad idea if that actually happens, because it's kind of like Big Brother. They can shut you off anytime they want.
3: And they're tracking everything.
4: Yeah, they're tracking everything. It's just not... We don't want that. Let's let's put it that way. We we really don't want that. So yeah, that's another reason why I've invested in some of these these tokens, coins.
3: I appreciate you sharing your philosophies and your reasoning and you know, like your journey with crypto. I accidentally bought an NFT that I didn't mean to buy. And a lot of it was because honestly, I wanted to experience using the wallets and I kind of wanted to find something to run. Being a writer, I was looking for something to write about. And I was like, oh, partici- let me just see what this is all about. What is it like using the wallet? I got to say, it was really frustrating. I hated it. There was a lot of me screaming at the computer, like, why aren't you working? <laughs> and then I bought the wrong NFT. And then there was nowhere to go, right? Because it's decentralized. I could not write to a help desk and say, hey, I'm a big dumb dumb. I bought the wrong NFT because it's a string of letters and numbers uh, that you have to point your wallet to directly to make the purchase. I mean, I'll call that paying tuition, but I will also say that it did make me realize that philosophically, I really do like the idea of DeFi, but in practice, it's hard. It's really challenging. And I see the appeal of centralization.
4: I I do too. But going on what you're saying, the thing that I always keep in mind is that, again, this isn't a mass adopted thing yet. Crypto in general is not mass adopted. It's under 10% of the entire world uses crypto as we know it. I kind of see it, and I hope that I'm right. You know, I'm knocking on wood right now. To me, this feels like uh, in the early or late 90s, I guess it was, mid mid 90s, late 90s, uh, just before the internet really turned into this like big thing where everybody was online. I feel like that's kind of where we are right now uh, with all of crypto. It's gotten a little easier since the past couple of years, but I think as it becomes more mass adopted, it's going to get easier and easier to buy I think people will understand it on on a much bigger level. And you brought up NFTs, which I think is a really good thing. Really quick, NFTs, a lot of people think of them as just being like a picture of a monkey with weird things on his face. And it goes for like $20 million or something, you know, like doesn't make sense. And I understand that. I'm not a huge proponent of NFTs like that. I don't personally buy them. But I do think NFTs will eventually have a much bigger purpose um, than just being a picture or music or whatever the case may be. I think eventually it's going to be like storing the deed to your car is on this immutable contract. Like nobody can steal that from you because it's it's on the blockchain, you know? Yeah. The use case for NFTs will be way, way more than just these weird images of things, you know?
3: I like that idea of not having to worry about paper.
4: (laughs) Me too. Me too.
3: Cool, Darren. Well, now, I don't normally do this. I've done this in one other episode. But are there financial questions that you want to ask me? And if you don't have any, then you don't have any.
4: I have so many. I Off the top of my head, um, financial questions. God, I do. I mean, in, okay, I have a question for you. In your opinion, aside from cryptocurrency, let's just say I had, I wish I had it, but let's say I had an additional 50 grand in the bank, right? What would be your, your best way of investing that money? Not crypto, but something else.
3: So I would first ask whether or not you have a fully funded emergency fund. And if you don't...
4: Let's just say I did. I okay. had all that backed up and I, I was ready to invest 50 grand.
3: So I do not, I cannot legally give anyone investment advice. Let's start with that. But from a financial planning perspective, I think, let's say it's you, right? And you're, you're a freelancer, right? You work for yourself and you have 50 grand to play with, I would probably say, does it make sense for you to take that and max out a retirement vehicle? So I would say taking what you can and putting it or taking the 5,500 or I think $6,000 might be the limit and putting that towards your retirement in an IRA. I would even encourage you to say, Hey, is, can we use a different vehicle? for retirement. Meaning, can we use like a SEP IRA with higher limits? Uh, How much you can put into a SEP is going to be dependent on how much you're paying yourself. So that's uh, something to negotiate. Another thing to be thinking about is, can you set up a 401k plan? Like, especially if you're have your own business, an S Corp or a loan out like an LLC, then maybe you can set up a 401k plan and then you can jam a lot of money in there because you can make an employer contribution and an employee contribution. So kind of the first question is, where does the money come from, right? If it's coming from business operations, can we jam it into a retirement account? That would be my first place to think of. The other thing, if it's not coming from business operations and it's coming like from an inheritance or something like that, then I would say, you know, depending on where it's where it comes from, I would probably advise someone to do something that's not that risky. I would say take the great majority of it and put it into a brokerage account um, into some ETFs or some index funds and take uh, the right size amount of risk? Uh, do you have any financial goals that you're trying to achieve in the future? And that could be in the next one year or five years or 10 years or 15 years or 30 years or 40 years. I would have to have a conversation with the person because what if they're like, my dream is to open up, I don't know, a brilliant business, a bu- a brilliant service that there's really a need and there's an opportunity there. Maybe it makes sense to take the risk. But yeah, boring index funds and ETFs. Sorry, Darren.
4: Very safe. Very safe. I like that. <laughs> I'm just curious too, how do you feel about like, let's say, I'm trying to think of how this would work. What if you found a place in the desert and it's $250,000 and you decide to throw 50 grand as your down payment, which I think is 20%. My math is terrible. Let's just pretend that's 20%, right? Because I know if you put 20% down on a place, you don't have to pay a certain tax, right?
3: It's 20% down. Yeah. That's the 20%. right 20%. Yeah.
4: How do you feel about doing that, and then either renting the place out full time, so you don't live there, but you rent it out through Airbnb or Verbo or whatever that's VRBO? Yeah. To to then pay the place off. Play, pay. Yeah. Pay the place off. Yeah, yeah. I can't you're, talk today.
3: You're renting it out short-term rentals <laughs> to pay for the mortgage. There's a lot to unpack there. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I don't know the market in the desert that well. I've had friends who started seven years ago. They were buying bombed out places, places real, real cheap, places for thirty grand. Uh, doing the the demos, you know, and then renting it out short term, and then ultimately selling it. They've made a lot of money. I've seen a lot of people enter the market since then, and I am curious about how much longer the demand will be for short term rentals. I'm curious about whether or not it's a saturated market. I'm curious about how legislation is being adopted quite regularly to make it harder to profit off of short-term rentals. I am curious about how many people who are like me no longer using Airbnbs. Um, If I can avoid ever using an Airbnb again, I will. And I'll probably only use it for like a family reunion type trip where there's a whole bunch of us. And it's about being close. It's about togetherness, Otherwise, I don't like Airbnbs anymore because after 10 years or so of them not having to make money, they finally need to make money. Their investors are like, hmm, that would be cool if you guys made money. So the pricing is changing, one. Two, again, the saturation of the market is happening. So that's changing the economics. And yeah, it just, when I look at, especially if it's like me and my partner, if it's me and Jen going to a place, I would much rather pay for a hotel because there's so much there that's not going to go wrong. I think that could go wrong at an Airbnb and it's generally a pain in the ass. So knowing the market, understanding the risks are important. I like the philosophy behind taking the money and using it and putting it into an asset right? An asset is something that puts money into your pocket, either because it's valuable and you can sell it or it creates a revenue stream. I like that idea. However, the one other piece about Airbnbs that we need to really be critical about is what is this influx of short-term rentals doing to the housing crisis that we're currently in? I believe that it's exacerbating it and that it's probably not the most ethical thing to do. And I'm really sorry to say that. But, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't do that's that, that a lot of things we do that's unethical, like buying a computer and thinking about the parts and how it's mined from precious resources. And frankly, the child labor, or the slave labor that goes behind making a computer, right? I'm still going to buy a computer. I'm still going to use a computer. So there's a lot of different ways to unpack this. And that was
4: very long winded. That was an amazing response though. Like very, very well thought out response. Uh, A lot of stuff I've never, I've never even considered before. So damn.
3: Well, you (laughs) know, I spent so much of my time just consuming other people's ideas and perspectives about money. And I just cannot, I honestly cannot believe this is my life now where I just like wax poetic and learn about money and teach other people about money and follow my curiosity. And you know just want to say thank you to all the listeners out there who have been around and reading my stuff and support what i do and have helped me create this like wonderful inspired curiosity following life of mine so thank you everyone
4: you're awesome and you deserve it and you're basically kind of living the american dream right like you've you've taken something that you love to do and you're you're doing it
3: i never had like a white hot passion For personal finance i was mildly curious i decided to study finance in 2006 because my time was running out in college i needed to pick something and right around that time right the housing market is hot like people who shouldn't be approved for loans are getting approved for loans they're buying houses all so many people are profiting and i'm sitting there wondering like these people don't seem like they work all that hard And they don't seem like geniuses. You know, they're not putting in doctor's hours and they don't have a doctor's education, but they're making a lot more money than doctors. And I thought, I bet you I could do that and work not that much and make a good living and have time to play my music. So, so much of my decision making was really around optimizing for work-life balance, not because I really gave a shit about finance, but over time, this goes back to the consistency thing. I'm really good at showing up. I'm at put, you know, like every day at work, I would just show up and learn more. I would learn about bonds. I would learn about index funds. I learn about all these different ways to think about how money works in the world. And this is just what happens when you do that every day. It's like you go down some funny paths, I think. And I was, I mean, it it is such an emotional topic. It is a fascinating topic, but I think it's taken me years to really appreciate that and to allow myself to to move past some of the more boring aspects of it to really find my place to find a lane and to find like a unique perspective of just all this shit through my lens you know
4: totally all right yeah. this
3: we this is interviews about you and not me darren so now i'm going to turn it back no. around
4: <laughs> sure i like hearing about it too it's it's fascinating to me to hear all this
3: to close out i'm going to hit you up with some personal rapid fire questions all right are you ready
4: I'm ready. Let's okay. do this.
3: So is there anything you've purchased that maybe feels like frivolous from the outside but to you is money well spent?
4: Vitamix blender. All 100%. Right. I bought it probably 10 years ago. It was like $500 or something like that and I use it all That's the time. That's a deal. So Absolutely. Yeah.
3: Smoothies, hummus, what are we making?
4: Smoothies mostly. Um cool. or like protein shakes if I work out, if I get in like a uh, a routine, I'll use it every single day. Yeah, just it's it just One of those things that I can't imagine living without at this point.
3: My first job was at Jamba Juice. So we had Vitamixes. So I feel you. It's a much better experience. It really (laughs) is.
4: It really, really is.
3: What's one piece of advice, financial or otherwise, that you'd give to your younger self?
4: A couple things. Overall, invest in yourself. And when I say that, I mean, you know, physically, you know, work out, eat well, just take care of yourself because in turn, that also helps your mental, you know, it kind of, Everything feels aligned when you're in decent shape. Doesn't mean you need to have a six pack or anything like that. I I sure as hell don't. But so that's one thing. I wrote this down because I wanted to make sure that I, I didn't forget. The other thing is to invest financially. So, you know, I know we were just talking about this, but either buy a place if you can, if you can afford it or invest into something, whether it be stocks, crypto, something that you feel is a safe, a safe bet. I think that's it, really. those two things. It all has to do with investing in yourself.
3: I love it. Did you have any financial superstitions growing up?
4: Not, I wouldn't say necessarily financial, but the superstition for me, I guess would have been that kind of everything seems to happen in threes. So like, you know, if I find, oh, I got a check for five grand, I'm going to expect that to happen two more times Or, or like maybe not five grand, but I'll get another good check and then another good check. And then I kind of wait for the next wave. So, again, I'm not saying this is true, but it just seems like one of those things. Like,
3: my mom used to say that. Actually. Right. Yeah.
4: Right. So, so yeah, that's, I guess that would be my superstition.
3: All right. Last rapid fire question. Do you have any financial fumbles that you can look back on and laugh at?
4: Unfortunately, I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is so embarrassing. But in 2005 or 2006, I kind of got into the stock market, had no idea what I was doing. But my band at the time was telling me to invest in Apple, which was a very, very good, wise decision. So I did. I invested not very much money, but I had you know a decent bag at the time. Eventually, I kind of, like, as I told you earlier in the podcast, when I invest into something, I like to learn a lot about it. So I started learning about penny stocks and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, I can get a billion holdings of this one thing for hundred dollars. So I basically like sold all of my apple stuff and bought all these nonsense coins stocks not coins <laughs> that all went to zero like all of I lost I think I lost 20 grand Ouch. ultimately throughout the thing yeah it was it was really bad so if I would have held on to apple even with the tiny little bag i had it would be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars today so damn i'd be in a much different situation but live uh, and learn so you know.
3: i can't remember if it i feel like i can't remember what class it was It was, I took a, in college, I had to take a really boring finance class. It wasn't marketing because I remember that professor. It it, It was one of the most boring ones ever. And honestly, like the teacher who showed up, he showed up for like the first week. And then the second week, he was like all hunched over on his podium. And he was like clearly in pain. And he's telling us, I fell off my roof and I won't be teaching the rest of the semester. So I was like, damn. So then, this new guy comes in. His name's Joe Formicelli. He created the IBM ThinkPad. He walks in and he's telling us, "Hey, I, uh, you know, he brought in a magazine with him on it with the IBM ThinkPad." But he had one hell of a financial fumble, and it had to do with Apple. He was like, "Apple asked me to come on or whatever." He there's a story about Apple courting him, and he says no, and they offer him a stock package along with just compensation, regular salary or whatever. And he was like, this is how much the Apple stock would be worth today. And he writes it on the board. And from then on, I'm like, I can't take you seriously anymore. You're supposed to be my teacher. But you revealed this terrible decision that you made, you know, and. uh, Failures,
4: (laughs) failures are are stepping stones to success, right? Like you can't succeed and do really well unless you have these. Yeah. Terrible failure. But, uh,
3: oh, all of that is to say, yes, maybe you walked away or you made a mistake and it was six figures, but this guy, Joe, it was millions. So at least you're not that guy.
4: Totally. Or have you ever heard about the guy going back to crypto really quick? A guy had, I forget how much it was, but a lot of Bitcoin and he bought two pizzas with it. Oh, yeah. And I think it would have been worth a hundred million dollars. I'm making up a number, but I don't know if it was that much. It was a lot of money though. It was like,
3: maybe it was it was multiple six figures on the at minimum. But still, that's like, oof. Yeah. That would I would wake up in the middle of the night <laughs> I would never eat pizza again.
4: <laughs> yep. He he someone tweeted at him not that long ago and just said, like, is that guy still around? He's like, I forget what his response was, but it was something like, I'm alive, but I'm dead inside. <laughs> I think that's what he said. <laughs> Good at least he has a sense of humor about it.
3: I mean, what else are you going to do, right?
4: Yeah, you got to just...
3: Darren, this has been an absolute pleasure and absolute joy. May your fate not be like the crypto pizza man's. May your lady luck be on your side. May your coins be plentiful and your joy be many. Where can the fine folks follow you along?
4: You can find us on Instagram under just at Phantom Planet. If you want to follow me, I'm at Phantom Darren very original i know i'm also on twitter at darren robinson and then i just wanted to give one more shout out to but this hat the designer of this hat is a girl named emma Atterbury. so you can find her on instagram or other social media i think it's just her name i'm looking right now emma Atterbury. yeah maybe i can give you a link if you want to yeah that'd be great put it up she's very cool artist so cool
0: yeah
3: thank you so much darren
4: thank you appreciate it
3: And now it's time for the economic update with financial astrologer Susan Goodell. Susan is our resident economic cosmonaut that does what many humans have done before us for thousands of years. She looks to the stars to better understand our economic present and to predict our financial futures. Susan Goodell, welcome back. I'm so excited to chat with you about July. How are you?
5: Hi, Paco. Nice to be here. I'm great. Uh, Summer is a wonderful thing.
3: (laughs) Amazing. What should we be looking at from an economic and
5: astrological perspective for the month of July? Well, the big thing in July of 2023 is that Venus, the planet that rules money, is going to turn retrograde on Saturday, July 22. And that happens once every 18 months or so. And so Venus retrograde is a time for us to all review, like you do in any retrograde, R-E, retrograde, review. Review your money and finances. while Venus is retrograde through September 3, so six weeks. And that's the Sunday before Labor Day. So from the end of July, all of August uh, into the very earliest part of September, Venus will appear to be moving backwards in the sky. And so it's a time to just chill on financial matters. And but there are ways that you can use it to your advantage, too.
3: Okay, what should we
5: do? Well, the big thing to do, and I've done this so I can attest to it, you gather up all your credit card statements. And you call everybody up and you say, I've been a really good customer and I'd like um, to reduce the revolving interest rate on my credit card. Okay. And the time I did that, I got about an 80% success rate. Oh, that's pretty good. And no doubt they've all gone up in the last year sure, or more. <laughs> and what have you got to lose? Right. They could, they'll, they'll say no. Or they might say yes. sure. But with Venus retrograde, it might be on your side.
3: Would you say that the other side of that works as well? Like, is that also a good time to be looking at maybe higher interest savings accounts or higher interest money market accounts? And, you know, instead of asking for uh, less interest, maybe asking for more interest on some of the accounts that you're already holding on to?
5: Oh, that's a good idea. I've never tried that, but certainly it's worth a shot. And why not? It's all about renegotiation Got it. with Venus retrograde.
3: Is there anything we should, be, um, we should avoid during this time?
5: Well, the, the classic advice during a Venus retrograde is to not list your house for sale. And it's because with Venus retrograde, what happens is that the buyer on the other side could get cold feet the buyer might not get the financing because Venus is retrograde. The buyer has the upper hand in terms of negotiation. Just like we were talking about, you could get a lower interest rate. You can also negotiate to get a lower price on any kind of big ticket item. Hmm, Okay. And so house, car, jewelry, anything huge like that, Venus retrograde is a great time to negotiate a better price. It's a buyer's market. Yeah, yeah. If you're in house buying mode, it's probably a great time to try and cut a deal because you've got the upper hand. But as a seller, not so much. Great advice,
3: Susan. I will, I will be on the lookout for shopping and all of the big ticket items. And <laughs> yeah. I'll most certainly consider the interest rate side of things and see where I can get more money or find ways that I can reduce the interest that I'm paying. So thank you for that yeah. tip for the month of July.
5: Well, starting in July, you got all of August amazing uh, to do it too. So, and um at the end of July, so Venus retrograde starts on july twenty two The Fed meets on july twenty five through twenty six. And so the Fed will be meeting to talk about interest rates under a Venus retrograde. So
3: do you dare make any predictions, Susan? Well,
5: uh, yeah, I will, even though it seems really unlikely. I'm just going to go with that the Fed will, one, for sure, this will happen. They will review interest rates. Okay. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that they might reduce interest rates.
3: I like that. I mean, all of the news is saying that we should expect rate hikes at least once or twice between now and the end of the year. Yeah. So... Maybe maybe we'll have a nice summer with uh, rates staying low and uh, they'll resume later on in the year.
5: Exactly. Even though, like I said, seems really unlikely that the Fed's going to cut rates. You never know. Venus is retrograde during the entire time they meet. We'll see. It could happen. It could happen. And then the stock market, when Venus is retrograde, it can fall 10, 12%. Oh no, Susan. And was, But what's interesting though is that Venus turns direct on September three. Jupiter, its you know co partner, benefic planet that wants to give us everything, goes retrograde the day after on September four. So there's a handoff from retrogrades from Venus to Jupiter, and I've looked at some of those in the past. And um, something to watch out for uh, during those two periods. And Jupiter will be retrograde through the end of the year is that the low during the Venus retrograde period in the stock market is really similar to the low that occurs during the Jupiter retrograde. Okay. It's it's like it makes a double bottom, one with the Venus retrograde and a second one with the Jupiter retrograde when they do this handoff thing.
3: Okay, well, I'm going to put a positive spin on it and say that all the money that we invest. Throughout those months, we're getting a deal. We're getting a discount. And in the long run, it's going to work
5: out. (laughs) But don't get freaked out because it can come past that when Jupiter goes retrograde the rest of the year.
3: I appreciate the heads up with what the market is going to do. And I will mentally prepare myself. And uh, when inevitably I log in and I'm bummed out, I'll say, you know what? Susan warned me about this. Everything is going as according to plan.
5: (laughs) And for sure see what you can do about all the interest rates or any kind of loan that you have. Absolutely. Um, It's time to renegotiate that with Venus Retrograde.
3: Sounds good. Thank you so much for this month's economic update, Susan. You're welcome. Talk soon. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you again for listening to Weird Finance. If you like the show, please express that like by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out a lot. And if you'd like to receive even more content from me, you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. Each week, I'll send you a short email of things I've read and recommend. Sign up for it at thehellyeahgroup.com. Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, which is an iHeartMedia production and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. He produced edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit on this episode. Thank you so much to Susan Goodell for her astrological reading and her economic insights for this week's segment, The Economic Outlook. For more insights, sign up for Susan's email newsletter, Red Letter Trading Days. Thank you to my friend Jess Brona and Ramsey Yunt for lending their voices for this week's PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker you have any comments, questions, suggestions, or you want to be part of the show, give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. All right, that's it. We'll catch you here next week. And in the meantime, take care.